0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hey, cardio nerds family, this is Amit. On behalf of all of us at Cardio Nerds, we are thrilled to bring to you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and created for educational purposes only. This series was developed by the Cardi Nerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellows with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bazanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance along the way. So friends, join us as we get to learn about the heart failure guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. And now, let's get nerdy.
2: The following question refers to section 8.3 of the 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Western Michigan University medical student and CardioNerds intern, Shivani Reddy, answered first by University of Southern California cardiology fellow and CardioNerds fit trialist, Mike Frankie, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Pertiti Kazani. Dr. Kazani is an associate professor an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the University of Colorado. She was an undergraduate at Duke University as a B.M. Duke scholar. She spent two years at the NIH in the lab of Dr. Anthony Fauci and completed a dual MD-MPH program at Duke Medical School. When she started residency, she thought she was going to be an ID doctor, but she fell in love with cardiology at Stanford, where she was an intern, resident, and then chief resident. She went back to Duke for her general cardiology and advanced heart failure transplant fellowships as well as research training at the DCRI. Dr. Kazani joined the University of Colorado in 2015 as a health services clinician researcher with a focus on improving health equity and bioethics in advanced heart failure care. She mentors medical students, residents, and fellows, and is a faculty mentor for the University of Colorado Cardiology Fellows House of Cards Mentoring Group. She has a research funding from NIH, NHLBI K23, NIH Ethics Grant, and Ludman Center for Women's Health Research. Dr. Kazani is an author on the 2022 ACC AHA HFSA Heart Failure Guidelines, the 2021 HFSA Universal Definition of Heart Failure, and multiple scientific statements. Dr. Kazani, it is an honor to have you with us.
3: It's so awesome to be back with you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me back to CardioNerds. I look forward to the discussion.
2: And Shivani, you have a question for us?
3: Thank you,
4: Matt. Yeah, so today we have another patient here. Today, we're taking care of a 34-year-old man with chronic systolic heart failure from non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with LBEF of 20% status post-CRTD. The patient was admitted one week prior with acute decompensated heart failure, and despite IV diuretics, the patient developed AKI and ultimately was placed on IV inotropes on which he now seems dependent. He has been following up with an advanced heart failure specialist as an outpatient and has been undergoing evaluation for heart transplantation, which was subsequently completed in the hospital. His exam is notable for an elevated JBT, a 3x6 holosystolic murmur, and warm extremities with bilateral 1 plus edema. His most recent TTE shows LVEF of 20%, moderate mitral regurgitation moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation an estimated right ventricular systolic pressure of 34 his most recent lab data shows sodium of 131 creatinine of 1.2 and lactate at 1.6 pulmonary artery catheter shows ra pressure of 7 pa pressure of 36 over 15 pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 12 cardiac index of 2.4 and svr of 1150 the patient was presented at Transplant Selection Committee and approved for a listing for orthotopic heart transplant. What is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? A. Refer patient for transcatheter edge-to-edge repair for MR. D. Continue IV inotropes as a bridge to transplant. C. Refer patient for tricuspid valve replacement. Or D. Initiate 1.5 liters of fluid restriction. All right. Mike, would you be able to tell us what the correct answer is here?
0: Definitely, Shivani. So the correct answer to this question is B, continue IV inotropes as a bridge to the transplant. Positive inotropic agents may improve humanemic status, but have not been shown to improve survival in patients with heart failure. These agents may help heart failure patients who are refractory to other therapies and are suffering consequences from end-organ hypoperfusion. Our patient is admitted with worsening advanced heart failure requiring intravenous inotropic support. He's been appropriately evaluated and approved for heart transplant. He has demonstrated the requirement of continuous inotropic support to maintain perfusion. In patients such as this with advanced stage D heart failure refractory to guideline-directed medical therapy and device therapy who are eligible for and awaiting mechanical circulatory support for cardiac transplantation, Continuous intravenous inotropic support is reasonable as, quote-unquote, bridge therapy. And this is a class 2A recommendation with level of evidence B and R in the most recent guidelines. Continuous IV inotropes also have a class 2B indication, level of evidence B and R, in select patients with stage D heart failure, despite optimal guideline-directed medical therapy and device therapy, who are ineligible for either mechanical circulatory support or cardiac transplantation as a palliative therapy for symptom control and improvement in functional status. Conversely, long-term use of either continuous or intermittent intravenous inotropic agents for reasons other than palliative care or as a bridge to advanced therapies is potentially harmful. This is given a class 3 indication, level of evidence BR in the most recent guidelines. As of yet, there is a lack of clear evidence suggesting the benefit of one inotrope over another. To minimize adverse effects, the lowest possible dose of inotrope should be used, although the potential for development of tachyphylaxis should be acknowledged, and the choice slash dose of agent may need to be changed over time for longer periods of use. In addition, the ongoing need for inotropic support and the possibility of discontinuation should be regularly assessed. Although guidelines give a class 2A recommendation for transcatheter edge-to-edge mitral valve repair in patients with reduced ejection fraction and severe mitral regurgitation with persistent symptoms despite guideline-directed medical therapy, this patient's mitral regurgitation was graded as moderate on his most recent transthoracic echo and as such would not be an appropriate candidate for this therapy. Although guidelines give a class 1 recommendation for multidisciplinary management of patients with heart failure and valvular heart disease as well as referral for consideration of intervention in patients with refractory tricuspid regurgitation, there are currently no guideline recommendations supporting surgical tricuspid valve replacement in advanced heart failure patients with tricuspid regurgitation. And lastly, although fluid restriction has been associated with modest improvements in hyponatremia in patients with advanced heart failure, the clinical benefits of this therapy remain uncertain and as such was given a class 2B recommendation in the most recent clinical guidelines. Overall, the main takeaway from this question is that continuous intravenous inotropic support can be considered in patients with advanced heart failure, refractory to guideline-directed medical therapy, who are awaiting durable mechanical circulatory support or heart transplant as a bridge therapy. And again, this is a class 2A recommendation. Or for palliative therapy in patients with advanced heart failure who are ineligible for MCS or transplant, and that's a class 2B indication, but is potentially harmful for long-term use for reasons beyond palliation or as a bridge to advanced therapies. That's a class three recommendation. Patrick Kazani, would love to hear your thoughts about this question in this case, as well as in your mind, what kind of you think about when selecting amongst IV inotropes and as well in these inotrope dependent patients that have been accepted for heart transplant, considerations you have for listing these patients status three versus status four in the newest UNO's listing criteria.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Sreddy and Frankie, for that great case. I think it brings up a lot of really important and interesting topics that we should be discussing. So first, in terms of selecting amongst IV inotropes, I think that's a really interesting question given what we're going through right now. So... In terms of how I choose right now, it's based on what's available. So there's a national shortage of dibutamine, as most people know. We have no idea why this happened. We have no idea why Pfizer stopped making as much dibutamine, but there is a real shortage. And it seems to be the common theme for the past two to three years. Ever since the COVID pandemic, we've been living in a different sort of world of rationing in medicine, which we were really not comfortable with prior to COVID. And so it's no longer an issue of which drug company I need to deal with, or no longer an issue of what insurance is gonna cover. It's really dependent on delays and shortages. So right now there's a Dibutamine shortage. So at our institution, we're reserving Dibutamine for patients who are extremely ill, who have severe renal disease where we can't use Milrenone. So in reality, in the old days, we would decide on using debutamine versus milrinone with different criteria. So there are no clear guidelines in terms of which inotropes are the best in different situations. There's never been any evidence shown. Some institutions tend to like milrinone better. Others like debutamine better. I will say that in general, if there's a lot of pulmonary hypertension or high pulmonary pressures... And and the renal function was okay, many people would go towards milrinone. Otherwise, they would consider dibutamine. But really, there used to be no major issue between picking between the two. And now it's really dependent on what's available. And so now milrinone is the given choice for most people, unless you really have someone with renal failure and you're going towards using dibutamine. But in general, I think I make these decisions based on partnering with our clinical pharmacists. So, Dr. Robert Page. And Dr. Courtney Makowski here are amazing pharmacists who we turn to. And so that's how I make the decision here. In terms of listing patients for status three versus status four for heart transplantation, this brings up a lot of ethical issues at hand. So, status three would be a patient with high dose inotropes with invasive PA monitoring. And then, status four would be inotropes without monitoring. So in general, if someone is placed on IV inotropes They should technically start out as a status four, And then only if they are hemodynamically not doing well, for instance, if they don't have PA monitoring, then we would look at urine output. We would look at their blood pressure. You could check central venous sat off of a peripheral line, not a mixed venous sat because that's for PA lines where there's actual mixing of blood, but a central venous sat. You could check those things and see if you're getting good perfusion. However... I think what's actually happening in the real world is quite different. Every center is under pressure to increase their volumes for multiple different reasons. There's bragging rights, there's other issues, but everyone wants to raise their volumes for heart transplantation. And so there is some external pressure to list people at higher statuses. And so I think there's what happens in the real world versus what should happen in theory. In theory, if you have this patient, you bring them in, you start them on the lowest possible dose of inotrope in order for them to have improved perfusion. If they're not improving, then you slowly up titrate or you go to temporary mechanical circulatory support. In order to qualify for a status four, you just need inotropes. But for status three, you also need a PA line. And you also need high dose IV inotropes. So either two inotropes or one high dose IV inotrope for status three. For someone like this, I would start with the lowest dose possible put them as a status four and then slowly upgrade them to status three if they clinically meet the criteria for needing higher perfusion and higher amounts of support. However, what actually happened in the real world, what we're seeing through SRTR data and other data are that patients are being upgraded to status three and even status two. So instead of receiving inotropes, at times people are being upgraded with a balloon pump. And in the old days, balloon pump would earn you a status one in the old system. You would get a 1A status listing in the old system. Or if you were on two inotropes and a swan, you could also be listed as a status one in the old system. Now that's broken up. So status two is now balloon pump or impella or some sort of acute temporary support and then status three is IV inotropes. Well, people aren't even necessarily going to IV inotropes anymore. Many people are just jumping straight to the temporary MCS. And so that is creating a different type of race to transplantation now in different parts of the country. But that's what's happening. And I think that's what many people had predicted would happen. Is it wrong? It's hard to know. In terms of bioethics, if you look at a physician's responsibility to their own patient, they have a primary ethical obligation to take care of the patient who's dying in front of them. So is it wrong to necessarily upgrade someone and put them higher on the list? From the physician's standpoint, maybe not. But from the standpoint of society and justice yeah, there could be some real issues. So there's always that ethical tension in our field of how to do things and what actually happens in the real world versus how we envision it when we create an allocation system.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kazani. I know it's important to talk about how we're all navigating these new allocation criteria and the ethical considerations at play, especially in something like heart transplant, where there is obviously a limited and defined set of organs. We so really appreciate your thoughts and answering that question.
4: Mike and Dr. Kazani, thank you so much again for this amazing teaching on the utility of IV inotropes for treating patients with advanced heart failure and also for helping us figure out how to differentiate between the different status listings for for
3: orthotopic heart transplantation. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure answering all of your questions and looking through these cases. I've really enjoyed myself.